Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. It's safe to say the bloom is off the rose when it comes to big tech. From data breaches and privacy violations to exploitative labor practices, the excesses of the online platforms we use every day are increasingly evident. But from content moderators to Etsy sellers, workers to everyday users, there are growing signs of opposition to what's been called techno-feudalism. So this time, rising up and learning from the Luddites. balked at a new technology, but then immediately made sure to defend yourself? It's not like I'm a Luddite. I just don't see the point of a smart thermostat. Or maybe someone's called you a Luddite for, say, refusing to get on TikTok or not getting a smart thermostat. Ugh. It's commonly used as a derogatory term for anyone opposed to any kind of technological advancement, thanks to the real Luddites, British textile workers in the 19th century known for destroying new factory machinery. But they do not hate technology. They are technologists and technicians themselves. They're hands on with the machines. And in fact, they become Luddites because they understand technology so well and the implications of how it's used in different contexts. This is Brian Merchant, tech columnist at the L.A. Times and the author of Blood in the Machine, the origins of the rebellion against big tech. Every time that there's an advance, just about, workers recognize the way that it's going to affect the structure of work or their their own livelihoods, and in many cases, they, they rebel against it. Understanding the real story of the Luddites has powerful lessons in pushing back against similar excesses by big tech today. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, the textile industry in England was decentralized. Skilled individuals, alongside their families and friends, worked from home to create goods, a structure that was threatened when automated machines and factories emerged. You know, the Industrial Revolution doesn't just explode all at once uh, at the turn of the century in the early 1800s. It comes in fits and starts over the 1700s when there's the spinning jenny that sort of automates how you can spin yarn. Um, and that is protested. So it's in, they're in little outbursts here and there. But it's not until we see mechanization reach more of a critical mass and it's adopted by more entrepreneurs, uh, we'd call them today, uh, who are looking to sort of really sort of maximize efficiency, organize work into sort of the factory mode. And there's a number of other things going on in the early 1800s. There's a, there's a trade depression that's associated with sanctions that England has put on any allies of France because there's a, the Napoleonic Wars are going on. 
and there's a trade shortfall as a result of that, and then there's a crop failure that, that leads to high food prices, and then sort of a lot of the entrepreneurs use this opportunity to kind of hit the gas on automation and buy some of this automating machinery that can do the work of those skilled tradesmen twice as fast, six times as fast, you know, often much shoddier quality, but they can produce more, they can begin to do mass production. And it's then, in 1811 or so, when sort of all of these different trajectories come together and you have this perfect storm and the cloth workers finally rise up after they had spent the last 10 years really pushing parliament to say, hey, you gotta protect our jobs. After enough was enough, they became Luddites as a tactic of last resort. I mean, I have to say, Brian, I thought I knew the real story of the Luddites, but I did not know that Ned Ludd may not even have been a real person. So tell me what we know about Ned Ludd and how he became this legendary figure. Yeah, so the cloth workers sort of adopted this avatar. Um, I, it's kind of almost like a meme. Um, Ned Ludd, who was this probably apocryphal uh, figure who was an apprentice weaver who didn't like the work of weaving and his master was forcing him to work harder and harder and uh, eventually he said, I won't work. The, ma the magistrate then had him whipped at his master's behest which threw him into a rage and he smashes the machine and flees into Sherwood Forest. You know, it's a legend, it's a myth, and it first sort of is printed uh, only after the Luddite uprisings begin. So he's this figurehead, and the Luddites use him as sort of a symbol and as also a tactical tool. So what they'll do is they, to that entrepreneur who's got a hundred machines that are automating jobs, they'll write them a letter and say, we know you have 100 of the obnoxious machines. If you don't take them down, you will get a visit from Ned Ludd's army. And they'll sign it, General Ludd. If the entrepreneur complies, well... They won't, they'll leave him alone. If he doesn't, then the Luddites do what Luddites became famous for, which is slipping into the factory with a giant sledgehammer and smashing just the machines that are automating work. Just those machines. Yeah, can we talk about that? Because we think of the Luddites as sort of mindlessly smashing machines, of course, but how did they actually pick their targets? Yeah, so the Luddites pick their targets because there are certain machines that can be used to either devalue their jobs, degrade their wages, or attempt to sort of replace them with child laborers altogether, basically. So these machines are doing three things. They're automating production. They're reducing the, the, the quality of the goods that are coming out of, of, the, of the region, of the industry. So it's, it's, it's basically dinging the reputation of all of these tradesmen and the amount that they can ask for for their own high-quality stuff. So it's churning out cheap, low-quality stuff. Um, so any machine that's doing that, there's a handful of them in different contexts and different regions. And that's what made Luddism so interesting is that it was adaptable, you know, even, you know, miles and miles away, it, mm. depending on, you know, what sort of you wanted to champion as your cause. So gig mills, the wide frames that would allow sort of stocking knitters to quickly make stockings in two pieces and then they could just kind of slam them together and they were shoddy and they'd fall apart. And the knitters who were, you know, the biggest sort of industry in Nottingham at the time, um, they hated this machine because it did both those things. It automated production. It could throw them out of work reduce the amount that bosses could pay them and just ruin the goods and the reputation for the goods that they were making. 
and you could hear them. That's the thing. The entrepreneurs knew that they were popular, so they would try to not tell anybody that they were using these machines, and they'd hire children to run them, but the Luddites knew what they sounded like. They would make right. this loud, clanking noise so they could identify, and then they would slip in and just smash those machines. Just the machines that were degrading conditions. Yeah, but it's interesting that, you know, there's a language of automation, but in fact, whether it's children or de-skilled workers, people were still required to essentially make sure that the machines worked okay. And they still had jobs in many cases, but they were just these very de-skilled, low-wage kind of jobs. Yeah, 100%. It's just kind of the enduring myth of automation that the worker will go away and that it's just the machine and you can you can have this great system that's just producing stuff well no it's more like a transference and it, at, it, that was true at the time and it's true today you know they the the skilled workers you know demanded more money for the work that they did uh so if you have a machine that can churn more out you need to sell more to make a to make up your margins uh but it's not an automaton, really, it still needs to be, as you said, managed by uh, by a worker. So they would fill the factory with with unskilled workers, undercut the skilled workers on wage, and then leave the leave the sort of the those who would become luddites with with few options. That you could either go into the factory, but a lot of times they didn't want the skilled cloth workers in the factory because they knew the trade too well and they were proud and they weren't as malleable or pliable or abusable, really. I mean, the children, of course, in the Industrial Revolution yeah. are subject to tragic circumstances. And they really kind of forecast the future of the next few decades of, of what work was going to be like in the factories. And the Luddites really wanted to stop that. Yeah. So how were the Luddites viewed by various strata of society at the time? So, among other working people, the Luddites were, especially in the beginning, hugely popular. They were the Robin Hoods of the day. And that's, you know, why they use this, you know, moniker, Ned Ludd. It sounds a lot like Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Ned Ludd, Robin Hood, Ned Ludd. And it's there, you know, in Sherwood Forest is around them. So, there's this tradition of descent that they're plugging into. And the myth and the sort of the crusade that they were on really worked quite well. And people cheered them in the streets as they smashed machines. Um, you know, some sympathetic officials would just kind of stand by and let them do it because they sympathized with the Luddites. Now the British crown was not so thrilled with it and neither were the factory owners. So pretty quickly they moved to make uh, frame breaking or machine breaking a crime punishable by death. Parliament kind of pushes this through and a sort of a interesting aside is Lord Byron is coming up as a lord at this time for the first, uh, and he gives his maiden speech uh, to Parliament in defense of the Luddites trying to prevent this bill that would make a machine smashing a capital offense. But it doesn't sway enough people. The law goes into effect. The crown deploys the military. There's just tens of thousands of troops and militiamen and mercenaries that are camped out at the factories, you know, ready to fight the Luddites. It's the biggest domestic occupation of England in history to that point. It's it's really, you know, looking a lot like kind of a civil war. And of course, the most powerful of that strata are really, you know, working with the British crown. And it's one of the first times that we see this sort of alliance of the state and industry sort of aligning against workers to forcefully put put them down, which is eventually what happens to the Luddite Rebellion. Yeah. 
So to what extent do you think the Luddite movement was not just about the machines, but about the emerging factory system itself? I mean, I think it was more about opposing the emerging factory system, more opposing the exploitation that that enabled, more about opposing a system that they quite correctly, in my opinion, saw as engendering um, inequality and and more poverty. So the machines were, I mean, they enabled this sort of transfer and this this evolution of, of, of work and the entrepreneurs were using this machinery to this effect. But it wasn't the machinery itself that that was the source of protest. It was, again, how it was being used. If there was a way that, you know, all of the cloth workers could have sort of banded together and collectively decided how best to use this machinery. And, you know, maybe it would save them some work. Maybe there would be cases where it would be good for, maybe there would be other ones where they would want to leave it alone and not use it to make a certain garment or, or a bit of cloth. Then you could imagine an alternate scenario where technology advances without causing this huge rift between yeah. the industrialists and, and the workers who, who really feel like they're being exploited. I'm Nora Young, and today we rage against the machine. Well, maybe we don't, but we're certainly talking about the history of rebellion against automation from the Luddites to today. Right now, my guest is LA Times tech columnist and the author of Blood in the Machine, Brian Merchant. The subtitle of your book, Brian, is The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. And part of the argument in the book is that there are parallels between those early industrialists and today's big tech titans and the big tech platforms that uh, that so dominate the tech scene now. So can you spell out where you see those parallels? Yeah, it, it really starts with, again, this mode of technological development where, you know, somebody like Richard Arkwright, who I kind of name as the first tech titan, um, wasn't really a great inventor. It comes out later that machines that he patented were, you know, somebody else's and he gets his patents invalidated, but he invents quote unquote, you know, this device called the water frame. It's kind of like a great big wheel that you can put next to a a stream and it will produce yarn with with water power. It's sort of an advancement of the spinning jenny and it can produce huge volumes of yarn. And his major innovation though was that he was willing to sort of break the the laborers mm. break their will into um, working in this brand new mode of production, which was a factory. Like, you know, it wasn't a natural or normal thing. I mean, there's a reason that they relied on so many um, children and, and vulnerable populations because uh, they didn't have the wherewithal to sort of resist this new, awful seeming mode of work. I mean, the Luddites, we talked about in the, uh, in the beginning about how they worked at home and they had all this autonomy and then all of a sudden you're being organized uh, in, in into a, a grid of workers where you're tending machine inside where you can't take breaks unless the overseer tells you you can and you have to stand at their command. So Richard Arkwright sort of institutes this new model and that's kind of what his um, major contribution is, is getting this new mode of, of division of labor institute.
instituted and using sort of that power um, and that will. So I kind of you, he's kind of an amalgam, I say, in the book of somebody like Steve Jobs, who kind of takes these ideas that are out there in, you know, patents him under his own name, pushes them out into the into the mainstream. You know, Steve Jobs always said, you know. Great artists don't borrow, they steal, <laughs> paraphrasing Picasso. Yeah. <laughs> and then someone like Jeff Bezos, who's really pushing the envelope and seeing how productive people can be. Um, you know, neither one are they're great businessmen, but they're not great inventors or technologists. So this route uh, sort of of this model where these are the sort of the folks that we tend to celebrate in, in, in pop culture and in the annals of entrepreneurship um, are really taking a, a page out of the playbook of these early tech titans. And that conflict that gets rooted r- right then and there, I think, is one that we're still seeing reverberations of today, where Uber and Lyft and Amazon, where the idea isn't necessarily so novel. You know, hailing a cab on your phone is not that different than calling your cab with right. you know with your phone yeah. amazon you order the product on a on a website instead of going into a store but technology has a, allows entrepreneurs allows tech titans to sort of argue that the old rules don't apply where those norms and standards and worker protections and all those kind of things have evolved to keep pace with industry technology can do great and wonderful things but it can also sort of be an excuse to say like well this isn't a taxi company this is a software company so we mm-hmm. don't have to pay attention to the municipal taxi code no 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 it's a peer to peer service that you're just plugging in connecting with an independent contractor no it's totally different and then they can just throw decades of uh you know l- legal protections out the window as a result yeah so you're a technology journalist in daily life why do you think we reify technology like this so it's like the the technology is the actor, the technology is the economic force, and not the social relations or the business model or the power structures that are at play underneath the technology or alongside the technology. Yeah, at the top, I would say, you know, technology is exciting. You know, it is very much human nature to create and to innovate and to build new things. And so, the things that we do come up with and create, we do want to celebrate that. And that does feel like, you know, that's the one of the best indicators of how we're progressing as a, you know, as a society or even as a species, all this new stuff that we're making that we weren't able to do a generation ago. However, the industrialists or the, um, you know, the, the tech titans are, are keenly aware of, of sort of that, that aura that, that technology can create. Um, and so is everybody who's ever, you know, hoped to profit off of selling it. So it can also be used as a force to sort of, uh, trample over our sort of our, our, our better intuitions or our, um, ability or willingness to sort of question whether or not, uh, something is an advancement is actually good for us as a society. And it, and it has historically been that way for, for 200 years. We see all these instances of, you know, people being kind of shouted down when a new technology arises and, you know, they, they stand up to protest. And that's what happened from the beginning of the Luddite rebellion. They were painted as backward looking, as technophobes, as deluded, as, you know, people who knew not what they did. And that was, you know, very deliberate. It was almost kind of early propaganda that, you know, benefits the people who are making the technology and who would rather not have questions asked about it, who would rather not have pieces of it uh, questioned or uh, put under the microscope. Uh, so, you know, there's a great quote that I include 
include in the book from Theodore Rozak, the cultural critic, that it's if the Luddites didn't exist, then their critics would have to invent them. It's very <laughs> useful to have this boogeyman that you can point to and say, oh, you don't want to be like that. Yeah. But what about the argument that, you know, you can look back through the history of technological change and yes, it's eliminated jobs, but it's also created new jobs and increased productivity. And maybe that applies now with, you know, automation and generative AI, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. To me, this is a, you know, a very deterministic way of thinking. It's just, it indicates that it had to be that way. Like, could we have advanced technology with without immiserating hundreds of thousands of children and workers and migrants and women? Could we have moved, you know, the technological needle forward without doing all that? You know, I don't think I'm too much of an optimist in saying absolutely we could have. And it was, as you mentioned earlier, it was more about the context and the social relations and the power structures in which technology was being developed. Yeah. So there's no reason that we can't have technology developed that is not, as the Luddites would have said, hurtful to commonality. We, can, If we have more democratic inputs into how we build technology, if more people are given more say, it's going to adversely affect fewer people. We, if Since you know the Luddites' time, we have had this model where the people with the most money, the most power, you know, it's a small, unrepresentative sliver of people, they get to call the shots on how technology is developed and rolled out and affects people. It's still us in Silicon Valley today. You know, we have these venture capital firms who can funnel hundreds of millions of dollars to the firms or the startups, the founders of their choosing. Often it's people who look and think a lot like them, and then they get to develop the technologies. And if we don't like it, then we have to play this constant game of sort of rear guard action, you know, like, look at what happened with Facebook, you know, it's taken over the world. It's got billions and billions of users. Its motto was move fast and break things. Mark Zuckerberg was just, let's get it out there and ask questions later. And we've done incredible harms to society. Some benefits too, but Think about if it was rolled out in a way that wasn't just so top-down, anti-democratic, maybe we could have avoided some of that. Yeah, but I mean, in the book, it seems like you think that grassroots organizing is more promising than government regulation. But, you know, these global platforms are so much larger than 19th century factories. Like, isn't there an argument that we need, say, like a larger international regulatory change? Oh, absolutely. I think I think it's both. I think neither will happen in a vacuum. So, you know, grassroots organizing can demonstrate support for regulatory change. So I think it's kind of an all of the above, you know, approach we need to take. I think more more tech companies and workers affected by tech companies should be organizing and trying to, you know, fight for their rights on the ground. And we just saw a great example of how successful that can be with the writers in the WGA who just won a big victory against the studios and they won control over how they use AI in the labor process there. So the studios wanted to say like, oh, we can use AI however we want, you know, like, let's just keep an open dialogue about it. And they said, no, how about in our contract, we say the studios don't get to use AI to write scripts at all. If, if AI is going to be used, then we'll determine how it's how, how, how that is. And they actually won that victory, um, which was huge. And I, you know, I consider that a Luddite victory because they did mm. it by rejecting an exploitative use of technology and holding that 
that line and saying no. And then yeah. now they have a, a much better situation where they have more control over how they do or do not want to use AI. So I think that's a model for on the ground organizing. I do think we got to fight to break up some of these big tech companies. And I think we do need better regulatory control over a lot of this stuff. Right. But what about consumers and all this? I mean, people know these things about big tech. They know about the working conditions. They know about the limits of gig work. But people seem fine about taking Ubers and ordering from Amazon and so on. Yeah, it's a really hard battle to fight because these tech companies have become so ubiquitous. And again, that just speaks back to, you know, the the anti-democratic model of tech development I was talking about, because you could not have a better example than Uber, which has not ever really been profitable. Maybe in the last year, it's had some glimmers of profitability, but it had 10 years of being bankrolled by huge war chests of, of venture capital. It didn't have to be a business throughout most of human history. A lot, if you want to, you know, grow as a business, you have to prove that you can turn a profit. Uber didn't have to do that until it had saturated the market so extensively. So it had become basically too big to fail. People rely on it to get to work. There are places without great public transit, especially here in the States, where you, you know, you want to get somewhere in L.A. It's really hard to do it unless you've got a car. Amazon, very much the same. Amazon didn't turn a profit for a really long time. They just focused on relentless expansion. So it's there. It's in the fabric of society. We have to sort of figure out what we want to do with it. I wish we could see more sustained sort of backlash. I, you know, I personally don't use Amazon because I, I do think at this point it is a non-ethical company, but I also don't think consumer boycotts are the answer. Mm. They've insinuated themselves too deeply into the fabric of modern society. So the answer isn't just to shame people for relying on these, these tools and systems that have become so commonplace. The solution, I think, is to fix them. Yeah. Finally, just ultimately, what do you hope we learn from the history of the Luddites? I hope we learn that it is absolutely okay to stand up and say no when you see a technology uh, that is being used by management or by a boss to, to exploit you or your working conditions. It's okay to resist technology. And more and more people are, are, are taking this page out of the Luddite book. For so long, we've just, you know, seen Silicon Valley as these sort of champions of progress and innovation. And we haven't been good at questioning everything that they've done. That's changed in the last few years. But I think we can get even more pointed about it. I think we can push back further. We can demand much more of a say in how we want technology to shape our lives and the future we want it to help build. Thanks so much for your insights on this. It's a really great book. Thanks, Nora. I really appreciate it. Brian Merchant is the LA Times tech columnist and author of the new book, Blood in the Machine. You are listening to Spark. This is Spark. This is Spark. This is Spark. This is Spark. Spark. With Nora Young on CBC Radio. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced the Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. 
Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nora Young, and this time on Spark, we're talking about fighting back against big tech, what we have to learn from the past, and the current dissatisfaction with how the tech platforms so many of us rely on are governed. One of the ways that dissatisfaction is expressing itself is through union drives. We've seen moves for unionization amongst Uber drivers, Amazon employees, and food delivery workers. In May of this year, over 150 content moderators came together in Nairobi to form the African Content Moderators Union. Members include current and former workers of third-party moderation contractors who provide services for companies like OpenAI, Meta, and TikTok. We tried to gather uh, collective with the people who had gone through the same encounter within the same organization. And so there was that need to voice our frustration. And so out of that, we decided to form a union. This is Richard Mathenge, one of the lead organizers of the African Content Moderators Union. He's a former content moderator who worked on the creation of ChatGPT through SAMA, a company OpenAI outsourced the work to. We were actually training the chatbot to uh, work with toxic messages or uh, toxic pieces of text so that the people who will interact with the platform much later will have an easy time in as far as their encounter is concerned. That means because of the work of Richard and his fellow moderators, whenever you or I use ChatGPT, we aren't subjected to racist, sexist or violent content. Had it not been for, for the neighbor and because of the effort and the sacrifices and the commitment that we put on on a daily basis, um, we will not be uh, talking about ChatGPT as of now. Those sacrifices were enough to spur the action of forming a union. And it makes sense that it happened in Kenya, which has a booming tech sector, both in homegrown Kenyan tech companies and as the place where tech giants like Google, Amazon and Microsoft have set up their African headquarters. But that's also raised questions about what equitable work conditions there ought to look like. The moment we were introduced to ChatGPT, there was that euphoria, there was excitement. Unfortunately, during our stay, it was not that rosy as we expected or as we anticipated. I would see that my brothers and sisters being frustrated on a daily basis. The excitement that was there before when they were starting the project was simply uh, deteriorating and fading away on a daily basis. And so I could tell that they were traumatized because of the text messages that they were reading day in, day out. So I tried to use my diplomatic skills to reach out to their management and remind them of their commitment to providing a conducive environment, including psychiatric assistance for my brothers and sisters. Unfortunately, this commitment was not there to, so um, I felt I needed to do more. There were also concerns about the amount of money the moderators were receiving for this difficult work. According to the Wall Street Journal, workers on the OpenAI ChatGPT project were paid an average of between $1.46 and $3.74 per hour U.S., citing a SAMA spokesperson. 
But Richard says that when you factor in things like remittances workers sent home to family, there wasn't much left. Remember, these are individuals who are breadwinners. They they have their families. Some of them have been raised by single mothers. And, and respectfully, they were required to, you know, out of love, um, reach out to their parents and to their single mothers and, and tell them, you know, you educated me all through my school life. And um, this is just a token to say thank you. But it was not enough. It was not um, even when you're sending something back at home, you are almost left with nothing at the end of the month. Uh, it was not a rosy affair. Yeah. I know that at that union meeting in the spring, it included workers from YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, as well as OpenAI. So, you know, how, how many different types of workers could potentially be in this union? So um, as we started off, it was 150 individuals um, drawn from different AI organizations within the city. Uh, but as we have moved uh, along, we are speaking of almost 400 individuals. And this is our brothers and sisters from uh, respective AI organizations all over the country. Um, so right now we are speaking of an inventory of about 400 individuals. Wow. I understand you and others also approached Kenyan Parliament. Can you tell me about that? Yes. So um, we approached the uh, Kenyan Parliament to come up with legislation uh, that will provide um, a clear pathway uh, on some of these organizations on how they are supposed to be to be run and how they are supposed to be uh, conducted. So we reached out to, the, to our representatives with three clear objectives and, and, and petitions. Um, the first one was to um, try and launch investigation in as far as content moderation work is concerned, um, specifically with respect to summer. Uh, the second petition was to come up with legislation that will stop uh, organizations like summer from targeting uh, young and vulnerable individuals who are just graduating from high school. Some of them are graduating from campus. Um, from doing this uh, kind of traumatic uh, work. Um, the, the other final petition was to come up with um, a very clear and robust uh, mechanism that will address the issue of content moderation work for these organizations to provide clear pathway in terms of psychological support. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are the three petitions that we rendered to Parliament. Um, we pray that they uh, uh, work on this as a matter of urgency because uh, as we speak right now, SAMA is dedicated and committed to uh, recruiting young individuals, even as we speak, uh, from campus and they train them, uh, avoid of providing psychological support. Nora. Hmm. Nairobi is a tech hub on its own, and a lot of tech work is also outsourced to Kenya. So beyond the Content Moderators Union, how would you like to see Kenyan tech workers' jobs improve? Content moderators and tech workers need to be treated respectfully. Their mental health needs to be uh, addressed, uh, as well as the um, remuneration as well. We need uh, proper policies and proper mechanisms put in place to see um, the improvement uh, and the commitment of these uh, organizations on working on the lives 
of uh, these tech workers. This is not something that we can bargain for. Mm-hmm. Richard, thank you so much for your insights on this. Thanks, Nora. Richard Mathenge is a founder of the African Content Moderators Union and a member of the Partnership on AI's Policy Steering Committee in Nairobi. We reached out to SAMA AI for a statement. They told us the company disputes the claims made by moderators in regards to wages and psychological support. SAMA also said they terminated the pilot project with OpenAI immediately following the concerns raised by the East Africa team and fully exited content moderation in March of 2023. You're listening to Spark from your friends at CBC Radio. As we heard from Richard, the work of online moderators can be very difficult and thankless, and yet it's necessary to make the tech tools operate. So how much of a difference can something like the Content Moderators Union make? I think it's a wonderful development for workers and in some ways an inevitability that the industry should have foreseen because of their demonstrated lack of interest in improving content moderation worker conditions. As we know, those kinds of progressive efforts within labor do not come from management. They come from workers pressing and making demands for their basic humanity to be respected. And I think the members of this union were right to do that. This is Sarah T. Roberts. I'm a professor at UCLA in Los Angeles, California. I'm the director of the Center for Critical Internet Inquiry at UCLA and the author of Behind the Screen, Content Moderation in the Shadows of Social Media. In the book, Sarah sheds light on the invisible work done by moderators to shield users from hateful language, violent videos, and cruelty on the commercial internet. Her work also looks at how these workers and users can combat the excesses of the big tech platforms. Invariably, any kind of worker organizing will be met with hostility from the management class and from the owners. But this particular group has done very well for itself in terms of articulating the conditions that have pressed them into the position of wanting to organize in this way. I think that they have a very strong media presence and and someone in leadership who can really articulate their situation and their needs, which are wholly reasonable. (laughs) They're asking to not be psychologically damaged by the work that they do and to be properly compensated for the dangerous nature of the work. Those seem like basics. And we're hardly in a moment where the companies can say we didn't know. It's been years. So there's the formation of the African Content Moderators Union, which happened this past spring. But there's also a lawsuit currently making its way through the courts in Kenya. This case involves Meta, Facebook's parent company, and two third-party moderation companies, one of which is Sama. More than 180 moderators are seeking redress over pay and working conditions. They also want Meta to confirm their right to unionize and changes to mental health support. Settlement talks between Meta, Sama, and the moderators recently broke down. But Sarah says she sees promise in this type of case. For years, I have believed that these kinds of progressive efforts will yield the most success coming from outside the United States. In the U.S., 
There have been some court actions of a similar nature or alleging similar things. But what tends to happen is that those court cases get settled before they really see the light of day and are subject to the public being able to witness them. And they are subject to non-disclosure agreements and we never hear anything else. So the individuals kind of settle out their needs financially are, are hopefully met through that process. But in other places where we're seeing workers come together as collectives and, and we're seeing some strategic lawsuit filing and so on, I think there's perhaps an opportunity to make some change in these systems. So the firms will tell you, and, and it is true to some extent, that this activity requires a, a large amount of available labor, people willing to do the work, people who also have specific cultural linguistic competencies. So that necessitates, in many cases, outsourcing to places around the globe to meet those needs. Fair enough. But where I start to diverge with the claims around the necessity for this is where it becomes clear to me that content moderation, on the one hand, is a mission critical activity for these firms. And they're, they'd be the first to let you know that, that it is. And yet, it is treated as an afterthought. It is treated as a low status and therefore low wage kind of activity. People are considered replaceable and expendable. And the companies do not treat it as a central or core part of their function. They outsource it out. They work with third parties. And uh, in some ways, they wash their hands of it in, in that sense. That's kind of the ideological piece where if they could, they would wave a magic wand and automate the whole process, but it's simply not possible. And lastly, I would say, and, and perhaps most cynically in this case, we have a well-worn playbook from many industries, the textile industry, manufacturing, others, of out of sight, out of mind, globalizing activity to chase the cheapest absolute bottom line in terms of pay and plausible deniability when things go wrong. So in other words, this puts them at arm's length from activities that, that are known to be harmful and known to be incredibly onerous and difficult for workers. And yet they will gesture at those third parties for being responsible for the poor working conditions. When the truth is that the tech companies have incredible power to set the tone and the expectations and the mandate around these issues. So they've really kind of worked out a sweetheart deal for themselves where they can get and rest all of the competency and all of the well-being out of these employees until these employees just aren't able to do the work anymore. And they just go and find another person to replace them. Mm -hmm. So you wrote a book called Behind the Screen about the work that content moderators on social media do. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, how big the sector is and also why this is such difficult work? Well, it's a sector that has grown exponentially alongside the public's engagement with social media. So just as we have seen almost every aspect of our lives sort of contained within and constrained by these platforms, all of that output is now subject to review, reporting, falling in line with the rules of engagement for the platforms, etc. So the human review process can begin a number of ways, particularly because most platforms also use computational mechanisms now to 
cull material that otherwise wouldn't necessarily be reported. And that also has to be vetted. And certainly what I was looking at in my book is that human review process that begins when someone like you or me encounters something disturbing, startling that we think is inappropriate for whatever reason on a platform and we file a report about it. Eventually, that makes its way to human review. And these are people who are trained to achieve a high level of both efficiency, so and a high level of productivity, but also high level of accuracy vis-a-vis the rules of the platform. And they are looking at a new report or a new piece of content, perhaps every 10 seconds. It is akin to being on an assembly line in that regard. It's all an always on situation when you are working as a content moderator and, and especially as a generalist. And there's never a moment where you will come to the end of the line and say, okay, I've, I've got, I've got it all. I've reviewed it all there. It's an endless stream of material. Sometimes the job can be incredibly boring and incredibly mundane. I mean, to the point where the difficulty of it is the rote nature of it and and sort of the mind numbing of it. But the difficulty with that is that it will often be punctuated by moments of abject horror, extreme material that really no one would ever want to see. And I guess the last thing I would say about the work and and the workers is that despite the fact that so many of them are, are outsourced to third parties and undervalued and disregarded, these workers are well aware of their mission critical role. And they often articulate that to people like me. They say, you know, I'm doing this work so that you don't have to see what I have to see. There's a real sense of sacrifice and altruism there that many of them didn't sign on for initially, but they make the meaning out of the work through realizing that what they're doing is, in essence, protecting the rest of us. All of this, again, for a relative low wage, for precarious work conditions, for not even being directly employed by the companies for which they labor. So it's a really tall order. It's a really tough job. And I began my research all the way back in 2010. And I can tell you today, in 2023, I haven't seen a significant change in the industry with regard to these conditions, even though the promised AI and, you know, generative AI in particular has arrived, as I thought and predicted, it is in fact a bit of a reinforcement for the need for moderation itself. Because as we know, these workers are now involved in building training models that require them to be mired in this material 100% of the time. So there's really not been any significant relief. I'm Nora Young. Today on Spark, we're talking about what's at stake for content moderators and for the tech platforms that rely on their labor. Right now, my guest is Sarah T. Roberts, author of Behind the Screen. It seems like there's an ever-growing number of examples of people protesting in various ways against the abuses of tech platforms. We're even starting to hear the term neo-Luddism being used. Across the board in the United States and elsewhere, there's been a resurgence of the labor movement, a new labor movement in some regards and in some ways. And it's happening, interestingly, across many sectors. So 
We've got Starbucks organizing here in Los Angeles. We've got grocery store workers who are currently organizing. We've seen the SAG-AFTRA strikes and the Writers Guild strikes. So there's sort of a, a labor sentiment across the board, but in the tech sector, especially, it was sort of considered to be strike-proof in so many ways because the tech sector for many of its employees, but certainly not all, was able to provide high levels of remuneration, great benefits, you know, an elite work experience. But that isn't true for all the workers by any means. The tech employs all kinds of workers who are sort of at the bottom of the ladder in terms of pay and and status and conditions. And especially in the tech sector, where there is such a gap between workers like that and those workers at the top, I would say it was almost a situation where tech created the preconditions for their workers to want to respond in this way. And I do think it's exciting, especially these movements that are happening around the world. So there's people who are hired to do digital labor, like content moderators, as we've been talking about. But there's also people who earn their livelihood through these platforms. This spring, food delivery workers in India went on strike for a week over pay cuts. Or this summer, people who sell their wares on Etsy boycotted Etsy UK because the platform was holding back as much as 75% of their sales earnings for a period of time. So how effective can things like protests and strikes and boycotts be? Well, they're incredibly effective. And the simple reason is these platforms, despite advertising themselves as all tech all the time, run on humans. They run on human labor. They run on the ingenuity and input and pounding the pavement, in some cases, of human beings. They rely on their creativity and outputs. And it's very easy for those at the top of these firms to lose sight of that because they're so enamored with the technology as well. And they really disregard that humanity. But behind a very thin veil, you will find legions of human beings. So the companies continue to undervalue that human element at their own peril. (laughs) But presumably, it partly depends on whether there, there are alternative platforms or whether there's a sort of one behemoth dominating the whole market. Well, I mean, I, ostensibly that, that could be true, but I think the, I think the status quo really is that we're in largely a situation of monopolies or maybe at best duopolies. And these companies, they came in and sort of became the only game in town, the monopoly in town, and then started to do all sorts of things, price surging, you know, poor conditions, constantly lowering the take-home pay of the people who make the the company really go. So in some ways, that monopoly status makes them quite fragile because if all of their, you know, if all of the Uber drivers take an action, they're sort of out of luck in that regard. Um, Yes, there's many delivery services, but not that many across the board like we might see in some other industries where you could have your pick. So these labor actions tend to be very significant with regard to the bottom line of of the one or two firms who are controlling the the market in that particular sector. Yeah. Companies like Uber, of course, argue that their drivers are not employees. So how does that complicate the picture of, you know, uh, labor management relationships? Well, they have unfortunately been able to successfully defeat legislation in places like California, where I'm from, through their financial capacity and and ability to lobby. But at the end of the day, the drivers will demonstrate 
their worth and merit to Uber when they withhold their own labor. So in the context of of a labor action that involves withholding labor, I think that status or the argument around that will certainly take a backseat to the fact that their non-employees are non-driving, right? Right, right, right. right. I'm Nora Young, and right now my guest is Sarah T. Roberts, an associate professor in the Department of Information Studies at UCLA. We're talking about the unseen true cost of digital labor. The title of Sarah's book, Behind the Screen, suggests the invisibility of content moderators, but also the human labor behind our tech services more broadly. Think about it. You order your food through an app, it shows up at your door. You may not even see or interact with the person who delivered it. And Sarah says that has an impact on labor action. These models are designed to obfuscate the humanity involved in their delivery of services or or the production that they do. And that goes down to Silicon Valley's peculiar cyber libertarian ideology that puts machines and computation at a premium above, you know, the basic recognition of human effort and humanity and humanness itself. Of course, that does pose problems when it comes to organizing or when it comes to advocacy and awareness among the general public. I'm always happy to participate in conversations like the ones we're having because this is one important key way that people can become aware of the circumstances of these behind the scenes, behind the screen workers that exist in so many contexts within what we think of as tech. But on the other hand, presumably the argument is that people can just go elsewhere, whether they're users or people who are earning money, that tech platforms have the right to control how they run their businesses as long as they're complying with the law. So what do you make of that argument? Well, of course they do, but no individual or or collective is mandated by law to give their time and energy and effort and creativity and humor and arguing (laughs) and so on to those platforms. So they have to strike a balance there. I mean, in some places in the European Union and other jurisdictions, there are mechanisms being put in place that mandate certain types of protections and other things that the tech companies will have to comply with. In North America, not so much, particularly in the United States. The kind of regulatory apparatus has been broken in this country for over 40 years. But yes, there are alternatives and people can move to them and they will. (laughs) They will. So if you're the owner of X, perhaps, and you see a complete exodus from your platform that was at one point an incredibly powerful political and cultural engine, you have a problem. (laughs) You have a problem and it's on you to fix it. You can't just throw a tantrum and demand that the users come back or that the advertisers come back. You have to make a hospitable environment that people are interested in participating in. And that, frankly, is just business. (laughs) Sarah, thanks so much for your insights on this. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Sarah T. Roberts is the director of the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry and the author of Behind the Screen, Content Moderation in the Shadow of Social Media. You 
you've been listening to Spark. The show was made by Michelle Parisi, Sam Marie Johannes, Megan Carty, and me, Nora Young. And by Brian Merchant, Richard Mathenge, and Sarah T. Roberts. Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favorite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.